You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at the Post. My guest today is Norway's new prime minister, Jonas Garstura. Uh, Prime Minister Stura has just returned from Glasgow, Scotland, in a COP26 uh, UN climate meeting. Uh, he's going to talk to us today about what happened there, about uh, issues of oil and gas production, including Norway's own, and about leadership issues in general in today's world. Prime Minister Stura, thank you so much for joining us on Washington Post Live. Thank you. Good to be with you. So let's begin with the COP26 summit, uh, I'd ask you to open us up in our discussion with an assessment of what you think it's achieved so far on deforestation, on coal, on fossil fuels, and what it hasn't achieved. Give us a, a scorecard, if you would. Well, thank you for that opportunity. You know, the first two or three days of this uh, COP was uh, devoted to the presence of leaders. So state, heads of state, heads of government, heads of government. And now it is really up to negotiators to, to hammer out the concrete deals. But I left Glasgow, you know, quite hopeful because I had the sense that compared to Paris uh, in 2015 or Copenhagen in 2009, there was a seriousness about pledges, commitments, and what leaders brought to the table. Now, the commitments on cutting emissions, that is a national decision that you have to take according to Paris. And, and all countries need to sharpen those targets. We have done in this government uh, committing to cutting 55% by 2030. Now, what happened in Glasgow was work on forests where we need to protect forests, the rainforest, avoid the cutting down of trees because it's a huge uh, importance to, to, to reach the climate goals that we protect these, these forests. That started 15 years ago with an international effort where we basically pay people not to cut down the forests. Now that has been much improved and I believe that in Glasgow we saw uh, concrete steps to make these institutional setups better so that we can protect more, more forests. Still work to be done to get the leading nations on board but there is a financial mechanism coming up to uh, secure that in a better way. Secondly, there is progress on mobilizing finance so developing countries can go down the renewable road and not uh, go down the coal road, to put it that way. So uh, Norway, for its part, is committing to double our financial contribution, uh, which is going to fund renewable energy and also technology to, to put that in place. There too, there was progress. There was a significant methane pledge by the United States and the European Union and uh, uh, a, a lot of countries pledging to cut methane emissions. Methane is 80 times more powerful climate gas than CO2, but it remains in the atmosphere much fewer years. So cutting methane will really make a difference. So on these agendas and including also on ocean management, this is a, a particular importance to Norway and I'm chairing an, an ocean panel of leaders there is also commitment, you know, to, to, to make real progress on protecting the oceans, saving it from plastic, saving it from, from the effects of overfishing, and therefore also expecting more food and more jobs coming connected to the ocean. So on these accounts, I was hopeful. And what, what now needs to be done is that a lot of these agreements need to be hammered out in the, in the institutional setup. One big challenge 
is to count the emission cuts in a reliable way so that one ton reduced means one ton reduced and not double accounting. So we have to develop a whole new set of global rules to make a, a, a global climate policy work. And that's a tall order and we have a short time and it's, it's urgent to succeed. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, as you know, um, young people who have the greatest stake in dealing with our global climate change uh, are, are not convinced, certainly not the activists. Greta Thunberg that today led a protest and she called the Glasgow meeting, and I'm quoting her, Global North Greenwash Festival. Pretty harsh words. What would you say to, to young activists like her who feel that not enough is being done, that there, there isn't sufficient urgency yet? No, on that last um, uh, statement you make here, I agree. There is not enough urgency. There is not enough speed to get the renewable energy sources up and going. There is not enough speed to succeed in capturing and storing CO2 from existing fossil fuels uh, uh, mechanisms. There is not enough urgency in mobilizing financial resource for developing countries so they can make the right decisions. But, but I, I don't agree uh, with the activists who say that uh, politicians of my age don't care because we do. I come out of a national election campaign where this was a major theme and where we have to succeed in communicating that we are doing everything we can to mobilize these new renewable energy sources so that they can take the role of the fossil fuel sources. Until we have more capacity up, uh, uh, we are not close enough to, to succeed. So we need that democratic push from what I would say young people of all generations, because we all care, to legitimize democratic government to make these sometimes painful decisions. So, you know, in order to succeed the transition, we need to succeed that it is fair and equitable, that uh, groups of people in, in parts of countries are not being uh, excluded from the transition, losing jobs, losing welfare. So it has to be an inclusive process. So this is really politics in its whole entire spectrum. Uh, it, it is complex, but it's, it, we know now it is possible. We can turn this tide, but we, we, we need more speed and more direction, especially to build more renewable capacity. Mr. Prime Minister, to, to ask a, a blunt question, one of the biggest facts about the Glasgow summit is the, that uh, the leaders of China and Russia weren't there. I wonder if you would uh, comment on that. Their absence seemed to be a significant uh, 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 gap in, in, in what, what's possible in, in terms of global agreement? Well, that doesn't mean that China and Russia were absent. Their leaders decided to be absent, and, and I cannot really interpret uh, all the details of that. But, you know, China uh, made uh, new pledges pointing in, you know, the right direction. We need them to do more. I believe Russia will probably be the country in the north that will be hardest hit by climate change. You know, the permafrost melting is going to have a huge effect on, on parts of Russia. And we see now uh, from the president, uh, you know, talking about climate change in a different manner, which is, you know, it's coming late, but it is going in the right direction. So um, 
uh, India's president, uh, prime minister was there. Uh, uh, there was uh, the president from Indonesia, you know, some of these leading countries. But the absence of some cannot reduce the commitment of the many. So we have to, you know, agree on the direction, agree on the commitment and bind ourselves into a process that will take emissions down and get renewables up. Uh, and um, uh, their absence, I don't think, will, you know, cause major harm to that objective. A helpful answer. Let me turn to your own speech uh, on on Tuesday. You made a number of specific points, but the one that caught my eye was that you pledged that Norway's public pension fund, which I believe is the world's largest sovereign wealth fund, is going to make investments now uh, in part focused on mitigating the climate uh, risk. That's a that's a big uh, commitment. But I want to ask you. What kind of guidance you and other political leaders are going to give uh, in that in that process uh, to make sure that these are these are good investments, even as they have an impact on on global climate? Well, you know, this is the world's largest sovereign wealth fund, and its objective is to yield the highest possible return at a moderate risk. And it's not we politicians who make those decisions, but, you know, very able managers under the auspices of the Bank of Norway. So that is clear. Norway does foreign policy through foreign ministry. We do industrial policy through government agencies, not through the fund. They invest to secure returns. So that is clear. What we are saying is that since this is Norwegian people's property and it's going to last in principle for eternity, securing pensions, we have to see to it that it is in line with what is expected in the years to come. It has to be in line with the objectives of the Paris Agreement. So what my new government is saying is the following. We want this fund, which is the world's largest, to be the leading fund in the world uh, for responsible management and for the management of climate risk. It is already an able fund among the leading funds, but you know, its ambition should be to be the leading fund and setting an example. Secondly, gradually it should be moving in the direction where it is investing in companies that has long-term commitments to net zero. And that means that the fund which is currently invested in, I think, 9,000 different companies worldwide should use its influence to push for a change in policy in the companies in which they invest across all boards, all sectors and use that influence to, to, to stimulate in, uh, you know, emphasis on technology, lower emissions, uh, energy changes. And if, if there is no progress on that account, the fund can do as it does sometimes, it can divest. But when, when, when this fund, upon a decision by parliament, decided to withdraw its investments in pure coal companies uh, six, seven years ago, that had an impact on other funds moving in the right, same direction. So we want it to be, continue to be a responsible fund, which in a way corresponds to the values that we hold there in Norway. So Prime Minister, Norway is a, a climate player as a fossil fuel producer. That's uh, your, your oil and gas production has led to this enormous accumulation of wealth in your sovereign wealth fund. Uh, Norway is the biggest provider of gas to Europe after Russia. Uh, and I read that energy accounts for 41% of your exports. So those are, those are big numbers. Europe has been suffering a nat natural gas 
shortage uh, in in recent months and a big price spike, Norway agreed to increase its own natural gas exports uh, to help deal with that uh, price spike. Uh, The obvious question is whether you're going in two directions at once, whether you're committing to uh, reduce fossil fuel production over time, uh, deal with the climate crisis, even as uh, in the short run, you're increasing your own because of the short-term spike. And people would ask, isn't that time to, to resolve that conflict with a, a more consistent policy? Well, let me explain. I believe the policy is consistent. We are seeing the end of the fossil area in the modern economy, clearly. So, you know, oil and gas production in Norway, if you look ahead, it will go down. And for what reason? For the reason that demand for renewable energy resources will come up. And Norway intends to play a part in that transition because we have, thanks to our experience in oil and gas and industry, we have skills knowing how to develop ocean wind. Uh, 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 ocean wind, floating ocean wind, the most modern technology of creating electricity without any emissions. We have the skills to lead on hydrogen, hydrogen produced by uh, clean green energy. And we have the skills which we have developed over the years to capture and store CO2. I see no account of reaching the Paris Agreement goal without capturing and storing CO2. We know how to do that. We have done it for 20 years. So here is my story. Until we have built much more renewable capacity, and we have to push for that in every domain, we need stable delivery, especially of gas and especially to Europe, which is our main client. On that pathway, we expect that the oil and gas sector will cut its emissions on the Norwegian shelf by 50% by 2030. But more important is succeeding this carbon and capture Uh, of CO2, because if we succeed in doing that, and I believe we will, we can use gas as a source for producing hydrogen, and Europe can use gas as a transition energy source on its way to stable and high-level renewable energy production. You know, now Europe is suffering a price hike, as you said, because there is less wind uh, than expected, and because wind and solar energy has not yet been properly developed. And I believe Europe is well served, not only relying on Russian gas or gas coming from the Middle East. Norway is a stable and predictable provider. But we are very clear, oil and gas will go down, renewables will come up. And we can play a role in that next phase in our energy chapter, you know, which started 100 years ago with hydropower coming from waterfalls. Then came oil and gas from the 1970s. And now we are in transition towards ocean wind hydrogen, and even solar in Norway. We can lead on that because we have the industrial skills in the energy sector. Let me ask you about the question of of fossil fuel development and production in the developing world. I read that Norway has lobbied the World Bank to stop financing natural gas projects in other parts of the world. What would you say to the the criticism uh, from developing countries that this isn't fair to them, that that you've had your chance, you've made vast amounts of money now in your sovereign wealth fund, but you don't want to help them develop their resources? What's the answer to the simple, basic criticism? That's unfair. 
Well, you know, I took office three weeks ago. I have absolutely no knowledge of such a lobbying. And if that happened, I would think it would be, you know, uh, uh, inappropriate. What I would say to developing countries is that uh, as you grow and you have a responsibility of providing electricity to your industry and to your people, one billion people do not have access to electricity. Uh, you have a right to claim support from countries like mine in making your energy choice. We are all served that you make choices which kind of surpass the fossil uh, step. You know, um, I heard from the Secretary General of the UN uh, speaking to him in Glasgow. He mentioned to me an example of a leading developing country that had told him, the president had told him that, you know, we now have the choice of developing coal-fired plants or investing in a renewable energy source. But for that latter option, we lack the technology, we lack the money, and we lack the procedure of how to do it. Now, we know that the technology exists, and there is money that exists, and there are procedures. So we have to organize to support that president and that country so that they can make the right investments in the renewable track. That is the point. I believe that you know, any world leader of a developing country cannot be told, you have no right to create waste because we have filled up the waste baskets. What they can expect from us is that we provide money and technology and support so they can make the right decisions. That will be the lobbying message of my government. Thank you for clarifying that. In the time we have remaining, I want to shift from climate and energy issues uh, briefly. Let me begin by asking about a question that we worry about a lot in the United States, which is, which is right-wing violence we experienced on January 6th something. Americans never imagined they would see at our at our capital, which I'm, I'm sure you've you've watched. Norway has had its own uh, issues. Most recently, a, a Danish man armed with a bow and arrow killed five people uh, in a Norwegian town. That was your worst uh, uh, assault of that sort uh, since 2011. I want to ask you whether, in your judgment, right wing activism is on the rise in Norway, and if so, why? Well, that latter uh, example you mentioned, uh, I will not judge that as a right-wing attack. You know, it's still under investigation, so I, I think it be belongs to another category. But I'll tell you, you know, today I have visited Utøya, which is the island where 69 young people were killed in 2011. And I visited that island along with the president of Germany, who is on a visit to Norway. And we had a meeting with students afterwards, you know, addressing how to deal with right-wing extremism or extremism of any sort, especially violent extremism, be it Islamist, right-wing, left-wing. And this is a major challenge. And I believe that, you know, the way to address it is to really mobilize the full potential of democracy. We have to expose attitudes, uh, avoid that goalposts are being moved so that we kind of live with and accept group definition of people, stigmatization of people that can lead uh, to violence. And then I believe that, you know, we have a big challenge in our modern society that connectivity, which was supposed to stimulate democracy and participation, is actually also mobilizing extremism and, and, and hate speech. And finally, I believe that in our communities, we are reminded once again that when there is unfairness, inequity and exclusion, people become exposed to radical ideas. 
So we are well served at keeping the social fabric of societies, preserving our social capital so that people are not kind of becoming uh, easy catch for extreme messages, be they religious uh, or political. And, you know, uh, Germany and Norway uh, have uh, different uh, ex examples in history. Germany has its special history. And I, I, I salute the president who is really uh, forward leaning on this message because we need to learn across borders on how to deal with it. And just to finish on, on what happened in, in, in Washington on the 6th of January, I think, you know, made a deep impression, impression on us because we have always you know, refer to the United States as being uh, the leader of the free world, and and uh, uh, we we hold it to high standards of democracy and uh, and legitimacy. So um, I think that was a was a very dark chapter that we experienced back there. Mr. Prime Minister, a final quick question, then we we need to let you go. As you know, we had elections uh, in the United States or on Tuesday that were viewed as a blowout uh, for the Democrats, significant setback for the Democrats. I, I look at, with interest at, at the Nordic countries. You've been head of the Labour Party since 2014. Now that Labour has returned to power in Norway with your uh, uh, election as, as prime minister, all five Nordic countries have left-leaning prime ministers for the first time since the 50s. Just uh, curious whether there's a, a shift in ideology in your part of the world and what that shift uh, should tell uh, other countries like the United States? Well, on that last part, I think I leave that to the columns of your paper and your own columns, you know, to draw the inspiration for the United States. I'll be a bit careful, but, you know, I would add to the five Nordics, also Germany is heading for a social democratic chancellor. Uh, now, why is that? I, I believe that, you know, social democracy in Europe is finding back to its roots. Which means that we should never forget that we are the servants of decent, honest people who live from their own work. Those who don't have special access to capital or wealth or influence, but are struggling to make the ends meet every day. We are there to serve them and we have to develop policies that are recognized by people that we are there to serve them. Be it in the taxation policy, the budget I propose on Monday will cut taxes for the lower parts of the salary, not continue on cutting the wealth tax for the richest. And also securing this environmental transition towards low emission society in a fair and equitable way. If we don't secure that equity, people will object to the transition because it is the biggest transi transition in modern economic age. So I believe the lessons learned, if you have countries where the inequity grows out of proportion, you are less fit for meeting this, the demands of the modern society. So I believe an equitable society that redistributes wealth, invests in health, education and opportunity, that's the modern solution. The right has always said that is old school. I believe this is really what the 2020 needs and I will connect it all to this climate ambition, because that is the biggest transition. It will need the mobilization of the whole of society. And if some feel excluded, they are both prone to be captured by radicals and extremists, and they are excluded from the participation of what we're doing. There, I believe social democracy may be onto something of finding back to its roots and to again be a modern force for change.
Mr. Pranister, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been a great discussion. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.